Welcome back to the Drunk on Riding Stephen King Dissections, brought to you in part through the patronage of Arya North. Now, I know I say that every episode, and you probably are like, why does it keep saying this? But, you know, maybe you don't think it's all that important, but that support really means a lot to me, you know? Every patron's support means a lot to me. It really makes all the time I put into Drunk on Riding seem, well, maybe not worth it exactly, but a little more worthwhile. And if you would like to contribute to that and get a load of exclusive perks while you're at it, head on over to DrunkOnWriting.com and become part of the community. It, Like I said, it would mean a lot to me. Oh, it's, you know, also where the first episodes of the newly launched Tarantino dissections will pop up, and I know you're interested in that. Watch them there or at YouTube.com slash DrunkOnWriting, along with all the other great shows. They'll all probably get here one day. Anyways, this episode is the first of three dedicated to Stephen King's Night Shift, his first short story collection, covering everything up to the heart-wrenching The Boogeyman. We'll talk more afterwards, but for now, please do enjoy. I completely fell down the rabbit's hole of Stephen King's student and fan films while working on this episode. There are a ton of them on YouTube, and I just could not stop myself. Was it worth it? Eh. Welcome back to Drunk on Riding and the fifth episode of the special Stephen King series of dissections. Today we're going to look at Stephen King's very first short story collection, Night Shift, released in 1978, which collects 20 different stories, some previously published, some completely brand spanking new as of this collection. A good chunk of these were adapted into television shows and movies and whatnot, and we're going to talk about those as we get to them, at least the good ones, the ones worth talking about. We'll talk about some of the bad ones too, don't worry. But this is also the collection that spawned Stephen King's Dollar Baby deal. That is, this thing that he did, this, this little program that allowed students and fans to adapt at some of his stories. He, there's a whole list of them on his website, you can go check them out, for just a buck. I'm not going to delve into every single Dollar Baby here. Mostly because I can't watch them all. They're not really on the internet. A lot of them are just shown at fan film conventions and things like that. But you can go ahead and find out more information about them at StephenKingShortMovies.com. Oh, and just a heads up, because we're talking so many different stories today, I'm actually going to split this episode up a bit differently. Instead of going by plot, by book, by adaptation, whatnot, we're going to go by story. So we're going to we're going to talk about everything right there in a nice little chunk. And uh, also because I don't feel like talking for two hours straight and I don't think anybody would want that in a YouTube video, I'm gonna break this up into a couple different parts. I'm thinking three parts. It's looking like three parts. This is the first one I'm filming, obviously. So I'm not entirely certain how long each one will go, but we'll see. So today we're going to talk Jerusalem's Lot to the Boogeyman. Oh, and we'll, you know, stick a beer in there somewhere as well. So, uh, without further ado, let's talk the stories of Night Shift. The book opens with a previously unpublished prequel of sorts to Salem's Lot. But as I said in the video that we did on Salem's Lot just, you know, a couple weeks ago, Salem's Lot is by far my favorite book of Stephen King so far. So I welcome as much Salem's Lot as I can get. And how many more times am I going to say Salem's Lot in this little diatribe right now? Gotta stop that. 
But even though it's billed as a prequel, it isn't really a prequel. It's just set in a time before Salem's Lot in the same place that apparently is also Salem's Lot. It's hard to see the connection, really. The story plays out like a number of classic horror stories like Dracula, Frankenstein, uh, the Doc, uh, Jekyll and Hyde. I don't remember the full title of that one. But that, you know, in letters and journal entries and things like that, it's a epistolary form. It's, it's okay. It's very, it's very kind of formulaic and I don't like it. It doesn't really work for me. Mostly because it's not Stephen King. It is Stephen King trying to impersonate another person's style. But maybe it bothers me mostly because it doesn't fit canonically with the book Salem's Lot. Jerusalem's Lot here within this short story is an abandoned town in the woods starting to get reclaimed by nature. Everything's kind of crumbling apart. And then we get flashbacks back to when it was populated by this kind of incestual town that would rival anything out of Game of Thrones with this priest who's summoning the devil spirits and he gets possessed. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's a weird story. It's kind of similar to Salem's Lot itself. And again, you can kind of see this as a prototype for that story rather than an actual prequel. But if Jerusalem's Lot was abandoned back in the 1700s, because it was believed to be haunted. Why would anybody ever resettle there? And why would they ever keep the name? Then again, I, I guess we kind of did that with Roanoke Island, didn't we? They all died. We resettled there. We still have people there. It's still called Roanoke Island. And people are dumb. We just, <laughs> we just don't get it. And as an opener for this collection, I was, I was really disappointed in it because I thought, well, so this is the kind of stuff that we're going to get. A lot of these were written before King's novels and published, you know, in magazines here and there. But this one, previously unpublished, written for some writing exercise, I believe when he was in college. Correct me if I'm wrong in the comments below. So it kind of makes sense why he would look to mirror the style of some horror classics. He didn't have his own style yet. Nonetheless, the story was filled with some pretty cool imagery. I mean, not just that incestual town, which was kind of neat. You know, the narrator was walking around kind of seeing the same face in everybody. And he was kind of think, thinking, am I going mad or, or is this actually real? And then there was that, that upside down cross that reminded me of exorcism in the beginning. I used to have the cross hanging in my hallway as a teenager. Of course I did. And then there was the literal worm at the end, which was which was really neat because I was expecting, you know, that that figurative worm uh, that has been kind of mentioned throughout literature as a stand-in for Satan. But to get an actual worm, that was pretty neat. And then the 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 zombie-like dead creature coming up at the end with the beetles crawling over his his skull, that was awesome. Very kind of Lovecraftian. Not very King-like, but I, yeah, okay. So there were some good parts of the story. And I do have to say that hook at the end, very well done. Stephen King has an odd interest in rats, or at least he did at one point because not only does Graveyard Shift feature them, but Jerusalem's Lot feature them, Salem's Lot feature them, 
And correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe in the Dark Tower series, there's a there's a, a population of rat people. Isn't there? I don't know. We'll get to that down the line. But Graveyard Shift, published in the October 1970 issue of Cavalier, sort of focuses on this one question, one character poses another, somewhere in the beginning of the story. He says, you ever wonder how it'd be if we was little and rats were big? So, you know, of course, we meet a giant-sized rat. A cow-sized rat, actually. This cow-sized rat that has given birth to an entire ecosystem of different sorts of rats. You know, we got flying rats, we got eyeless rats, we got legless rats, whole sorts of rats down in this sub-basement of a windmill that has been cut off for who knows how many generations. It's pretty disgusting. And then we get the windmill's foreman fed to the giant rat, so it gets even more disgusting. And then everybody gets eaten by the rats, and the rats are just everywhere, and it's awful, and it's disgusting, and I kind of enjoyed it. But the problem with this story is the culmination never really feels earned. Sure, we see the foreman as a bad guy, we get it, the worker's kind of fed up with him, nobody really likes him, but to feed the dude to a giant rat, that's just, that's just revenge on a whole different level. That is just wrong. You know, I've, I kind of always said, getting eaten alive, I think, is probably the worst way to die. You know, so, quickly followed by being uh, squished to death and then burning to death. Those all sound awful to me. But getting eaten alive by a cow-sized rat in a sub-basement that is also soaked and just nasty is just, ugh, just, ugh, don't even, don't even want to think about it. Ugh. Now, the 1990 adaptation directed by Ralph S. Singleton sort of helps lay the case against the foreman and kind of helps us believe that his death is meaningful and, and earned. There's a whole part of the movie that is just there to make us hate the foreman. I mean, he's accused of sexual, ugh, he, he commits sexual harassment on camera. He's accused of like rape. He gets attacked. He, he's responsible for several deaths that he tries to cover up. Pretty much straight up murders, if you really look at it. You know, it's kind of, it's, it's murder through negligence, I suppose. Although, it, he doesn't seem very negligent. He just kind of covers it up and shoes it under. And then he straight up murders somebody at the end of the movie. He murders the love interest. So yeah, he deserves to get eaten. He kind of has some sort of a heroic death. He doesn't actually get fed to the rat monster. And there's, there's only one rat monster in this movie for some reason. Maybe they ran out of budget to have dozens of rat monsters, but they did have really good animal trainers on set because the rats that they had there were just fascinating to watch. They were just so well trained. It's just amazing what people can do with animals. I don't know how, it's like, it's like they're, they're animal whisperers. I guess we had a rat whisperer on set for this movie. Now I do want to point out that as I was watching it, I could not help but notice that Warwick, the foreman, played by Stephen Macht, actually reminded me a whole heck of a lot of John Bernthal Shane in The Walking Dead. Same kind of manner rooms, same way of talking, same animosity, same level of lunacy. And once I made that connection, I couldn't not notice all the other ones 
within this movie. Jane, played by Kelly Wolf, reminded me of Marissa Tomei. The lead, John, played by David Andrews, reminded me of Sam Neill. And after a while, I couldn't figure out if that was just my mind playing tricks on me or if any of that was intentional. At least Marissa Tomei and Sam Neill, they were kind of big deals when this movie came out. So were they trying to go for that? Were they just looking for actors that kind of called them to mind? Or was it just that my mind was drifting because I was that bored with the movie and I didn't want to watch it and I was just kind of making up excuses? It was probably that. Night Surf, first published in the spring 1969 issue of Hubris, starts with what has to be the best opening line of any Stephen King short story. After the guy was dead and the smell of his burning flesh was off the air, we all went back down to the beach. It leaves so much to the imagination, so much that I just was yearning for. I was like, oh my God, this is such an oh shit moment. Like what did they just do? Did they burn this guy? Was he on fire already? What happened here? And I was pumped. I got pumped to read this story after that opening line, which meant that I was completely let down because nothing really happens in this story. You know, it's kind of, it's a bit of a slow character study in a way and it ends almost extremely abruptly and very quickly it's not a long story to say the least and honestly by the end of it i just kind of wondered what was the point of this sure we get something of a prologue a prequel of sorts to stephen king's next novel the stand which we'll talk about uh soon enough i'm reading it now and it's 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 really good but did we? You know, they mentioned Captain Trips. They mentioned the flu-like symptoms, and the characters have the flu-like symptoms that we see later on in the stand. But the way that they were referring to it, uh, calling it, what was it, A-B or A-6, A-1, was that ever in the stand? I haven't really come across that yet, especially the such casual referencing to it. I don't know if this is in the exact same universe as The Stand. I, maybe I'll, I'll find out in a, in a, a couple pages re while reading this book. But it is still cool to get that, you know. I can imagine as a teenager, even, even now, faced with this global pandemic of just trying to live out my last days on a beach with these people that I love, drinking warm beer, watching the tide roll in and roll out. I, you know, I can picture myself doing that. And then with the slow burning realization that you might not be immune, that the flu may just be coming to get you slowly but surely. It's just kind of this haunting experience. And, you know, I, I think that's handled pretty well. The whole kind of struggle with realizing that the best days are behind you, your, your, your best memories are behind you, there's nothing left going forward. I think that's, that's handled really well by, by Stephen King in this story. But again, that's it. That's what this story is, and it just kind of seemed unfinished. And I couldn't quite decide if the lead character being a downright bastard, which we're clued in even before we figure out what his name is, if him being such a, such a, just an awful person 
helped or hindered this story. I, I couldn't quite figure out if, if I liked that aspect of it. And thankfully, some of the adaptations of this story kind of helped mitigate that experience a little bit. The 2014 adaptation, directed by Tony Pomfret, gives the characters pretty strong motivations, gives them a nice little bit of backstory, and balances the lead a bit more. It, it, he's still a bastard, but he's kind of a bastard with a heart. And that's the kind of person that we actually need, especially in this kind of struggling end of life, end of the world scenario that is presented in the story. I think it helps that the film backtracks to before the man in the car arrives on the beach, before he's, he's burned. So we get, we get a little bit extra characterization. Sadly, Pomfret's adaptation is missing the just the flu sign that they wanted to carve into the world to make it into like a giant bronze plaque so aliens who come down one day and see the world as dead get the warning it's just the flu. I thought that was great. I thought that was brilliant and it was missing from the adaptation. Missing completely. It, sh it should have been in there. It's unfortunate that it, didn't, that it wasn't in there because it's a great piece of dialogue. Apologies for the interruption from present day me, but I forgot to say the title at the start of this one. It's I Am the Doorway. Enjoy. This one first appeared in the March 1971 issue of Cavalier. And I, of all the stories in Night Shift, I find this one to be the most fascinating. Because I believe it's the first published, at least mass published, foray into science fiction that Stephen King has released. And it's not just like horror science fiction, which, you know, we've gotten before and we've gotten a couple of those in this story. It's straight up science fiction. It's something that Robert A. Heinlein would have written. It's very reminiscent of some of his early stories. But I think the part that I find the most captivating is this sort of alternative history of NASA, where the Apollo missions just kept going. And remember, this story came out in 1971. The last Apollo mission, Apollo 17, occurred in December 1972. So theoretically, as far as Stephen King knew, the Apollo missions could have continued. They could have gone on to Venus. This could have happened. They could have brought strange things home. And that was an actual concern at the time. The contamination from, from the moon, bringing back to Earth. What were these moon rocks? What was on them? What germs were on them? What were we going to find there? That was always a concern. And, you know, putting it in story form like this, even as offbeat and crazy as this story seems with little eyeballs popping up in your hands, I mean, that's kind of freaky. Who says that couldn't happen? You know, if we're exploring the outer reaches of the solar system, I know Venus isn't the outer reaches, it's just next door, but still, you catch my drift here. We don't know what that could do. We don't know what could come back through that. What life is out there? Who knows? There's probably something under, what's that moon with the ice on the surface and it's all under, it's all water underneath? There's probably something in there. We gotta go crash a probe in there or something. We're not gonna do that because nobody wants to, but maybe we should, you know? And it's not like this story is the only sort of its kind. We get stories of things coming back all the time. Just look at the origins of Venom, or that, that last Cloverfield movie that came out, even the original Cloverfield. Stuff from space 
That's a big deal. Look at all the old 50s sci-fi movies. I have a whole collection of old 50s sci-fi movies. It came from outer space. The bug came from outer space. Things always come from outer space. As far as I know, though, I am the doorway. The only story, the only thing I've ever read where eyeballs pop out of the skin. That would creep me out. There have been a few takes on I Am The Doorway under the Dollar Baby program, and you can watch a few of the trailers over on YouTube. A 2015 version by Matthew J. Rowney looks particularly promising, and I really hope I can catch a viewing of it at some point, because it just looks so... You know what? Go watch the trailer. I'm going to link it down below in the description. Go check it out. It looks super cool. And there's another from 2017 directed by Robin... Kasparik that looks damn good as well. And it seems to have some wicked good sound design, especially compared to some of the other short films I've been watching of late. It's just, it sounds perfect. Sounds really well done. Again, go watch the trailer. It seems really good, especially because it's shot in first person. You know, this is, this is taking that little bit of doom that was awesome to the whole new level. And I really want to watch it at some point. Especially because it has one of the coolest posters I've ever seen. Seriously, where do I get a copy of this poster? I want it. I Am The Doorway actually inspired the beer pairing for today in an entirely coincidental manner. See, I was walking down the aisles at my local beer shop, Wines and & More, and this beer popped out at me. Kent Falls Brewing Company's Multiverse. Which doesn't seem to relate in any way to I Am The Doorway, except for the fact that it was shelved backwards, and when you turn the bottle around, you get this sucker staring back at you. How cool is that? Now, Multiverse is actually an Imperial Stout. It is super dark, super black. You cannot see through this sucker. Holding it up to the light, I see nothing. It had a good head when I poured it. doesn't have so much now. And it is fantastic. Ken Falls is usually known for their sours. They actually went there and you can go up and you can hike around and they're really nice up there. They don't really have a tasting room, but you can buy bottles and check out their farm and they got a bunch of animals and buy some goodies and whatnot. But uh, this is a brand new for me. This was actually bottled in January of this year. So this is pretty brand new. This is only two months old at this point. But according to the description on their website, this is a new annual that is going to be on tap everywhere all the time. You know, this, is, this is not a limited release. This is something that's just going to be around. And it might have just replaced my favorite Imperial Stout. It's crisp, malty. It's got a bit of a spiciness to it. It's, it's really good. I asked my wife to try it just before I came down here, and she was just going to drink the whole thing. She didn't want to stop drinking it because she really liked it. And she doesn't really like Imperial Stout so much these days. So yeah, this is, this is really, really good beer. I highly, highly recommend picking this up, at least trying it, but I think you want to stock your fridge full of this thing. I'm definitely going to buy another bottle of this if I see it. And I think my liquor store had a bunch of them, so I'm just going to do just that. But yeah, let's get back to Night Shift. The cold opening of The Mangler, first published in the December 1972 issue of Cavalier, hooked me immediately. 
the way the foreman can't look at the scene of the accident, the way he doesn't even want to talk about it, the way the detective, this grizzled guy, is chastising the foreman for it, and then he walks over, and then, let me, let me quote here, the detective took a long, frozen look, and then he performed a first in his 14 years as a law enforcement officer. He turned around, put a convulsive hand to his mouth, and threw up. That is an awesome opening. I loved that opening. And then the next line happened, and it completely yanked me out of the story. You didn't eat much, Jackson said. That's not a misquote. That is the actual line of dialogue in The Mangler, and at least two different editions of this story that I was able to reference, neither of which is a first edition. You didn't eat much? Really? Look, I know none of us are perfect. I know we're all going to make mistakes. But this is a collection that was published years later, and you can't pick up on that sort of a typo? You didn't eat much? But there were other typos throughout the collection, too. It, it, throughout Night Shift, there were a lot of typos, and every time one of those popped up, it just pff, took me right out of the story. And the Mangler, I think, was particularly problematic because every single time I stumbled over something, it made me not just pause and reflect and look at that, and the editor in me just wants to, to scratch it out and fix it, but to actually stop and think about the story of the Mangler. Like, doesn't it just seem super convenient that the detective's next door neighbor happens to know so much about demonology? Like, who knows that much about demons? If this were real life, I would have no idea who to go for for demon stuff. I'd have to go to Google or Wikipedia to look some of this stuff up. And this guy just happens to know it. He just happens to look it up. He's just is like, oh yeah, we got to talk about Baal and, and all this fun stuff. It's like, what are you, Karen Gillan? Like, this is, this is weird. It's weird that you know this. The movie, on the other hand, I can't necessarily fault for that. Released in 1995 and directed by Toby Hooper who you might remember also directed the adaptation for Salem's Lot. It starred Ted Levine as Officer John Hutton and Robert England, England? As William Bill Gartley. And it's, it's a little weird. It's a weird movie. First, let me talk the positives, all right? The neighbor being obsessed with demonic possession makes a whole lot more sense in the movie than it ever did in the story. He's some kind of new age guru, hippie, demonologist, who also happens to be Hunton's, uh, the detective's brother-in-law. So his involvement in the storyline and his obsession with the demonology, that makes sense here. He's not just some random professor who happens to know stuff. Okay, cool. Also, super smart decision, integrating the little refrigerator storyline into the movie rather than having it as some bit of expository dialogue or something that is just thrown in for good measure. Really well done on that. But that also brings us to the negatives, because the special effects that also accompany the refrigerator scene are horrible, absolutely horrible. Thankfully, Ted Levine is there to kind of sell us on it, and he is perfect in this movie. Now, Robert England, on the other hand, and I'm probably saying his name wrong, and a bunch of fans are screaming at me that I'm saying it wrong, is it England or whatever, he, why was he in here? What was his point? He was barely recognizable. He had so much makeup on. And sure, I get it. 
he makes his living off of having a ton of makeup on. But was that necessary in this movie? Or was it necessary for the other actor who played the photographer to have so much makeup on? He had so much makeup on that he actually could play two roles in the movie. One with makeup and one without. That's ridiculous. This is not Mars Attacks. This is supposed to be a serious movie. You can't just do that. You can't have horrible makeup like that and think it's fine. Still, the Mangler itself was designed really well. It sort of looks like a dragon, this behemoth lording over everyone at the laundry. Until it becomes its possessed, horrible CG iteration at the end of the movie. And you don't even really see that. It's clouded in shadow the entire time that it is there on screen. And the less I say about that, the better, because it's just, it's, it's just, it's horrible. It just sucks. Just, let's just forget that part of our brains. Now, I have to confess something. A few lines into the Boogeyman, which first showed its ugly head in the March 1973 issue of Cavalier, my stomach tightened and basically did a somersault at what I just read. Let me quote here. I can't go to a priest because I'm not a Catholic. I can't go to a lawyer because I haven't done anything to consult a lawyer about. All I did was kill my kids, one at a time. Killed them all. As a father, this did not sit well with me. I did not like this. I can't empathize with a character like this, a character who kills his kids. Any person who kills their kids, they should not have been a father, they should not have been a parent, they should not have been a mother, and they should not be on the face of this earth. Even the ones that sacrifice their children to God don't do that, not core, or, you know, if they sacrifice their children to a laundry press. No, you deserve every bit of damnation coming your way. But of course, in The Boogeyman, two lines later we find out that's not really the truth. He didn't really kill them, but he kind of did. He, especially that the one kid, is his last kid that was alive, he basically gave the kid up for dead to save his own ass. Like, what a horrible, awful father. You know, I, I'd be going to town on that boogeyman. I would, oh, I, I'd mess him up. I would take a bat to him so fast. I, I would, oh, I'd be, yeah. He, he, he would not be just preying on my children the way that he does in this book. That is not cool. And this father is a bit of a chicken shit. Now, The Boogeyman was adapted into a 1982 short film by Jeffrey C. Shiro, again in 2010 by Gerard Luff, and again in 2014 by Bobby Easley. Far as I can tell, this story has nothing to do with the series that started in 2005, but who knows? The 2010 and 2014 versions only have trailers online, but you can go ahead and check them out. But the 2010 version looks to add a bunch of uh, backstory and mythos to it and a bunch of extraneous details, like what looks to be a voyeur boogeyman. Yeah and booby traps and things like that, while the 2014 version looks to be more of a traditional take, even if it has some better camera work and whatnot than the original 1982 version, which I was able to see in full. That version also adds more to the story, in this case, more from the policeman's side, but that storyline never really goes anywhere and it really just feels like padding and it doesn't serve the story at all. The acting's not that great. Don't know why that was 
included, I guess, maybe for realistic purposes to kind of add this sense of reality to the story. But it didn't need to be there. What we needed was the lead character, who I really enjoyed, who was sort of like this amalgamation of Jason Lee and the dude who played Trevor in Grand Theft Auto V. Sort of like that. And he's sitting on this couch talking to this shrink and, you know, we see him go through the motions of the whole storyline. And by the end, I really actually enjoyed this take, even though it was, it was very archaic in a sense and very amateur-like. Still enjoyable. I think you should give it a watch. And I just have to say, I'm really glad they did not use the go with daddy line because I think I just would have died. Don't think I could have gotten through that. Two things I want to clarify before we go further. That episode you just heard premiered back in March 2018. So my pregnant wife is not fiending for Kent Falls. Well, you know, she might be, but she's certainly not drinking it. Also, since that recording, the brewery now does have a tasting room. I was there, you know, recently, actually. It was last week, two weeks ago. And it, it was rather nice. It has a playground and everything. You should, you should definitely check it out if you're in the area. Now, what did you think of this format for the short stories? I said last episode I'll likely be changing how I approach the shorts in future dissections, but after pulling this together, I think it works here, at least, as a podcast. I think three to five minute analyses would be a little, well, just not quite right here. YouTube, sure. Here, maybe not. Let me know what you think, but I might just continue to pull snippets together like this in the future. Speaking of, Next episode, the night shift dissection continues with looks at The Ledge, Trucks, which was famously adapted in Stephen King's directorial debut, Maximum Overdrive, and a, uh, a personal favorite of mine, Battleground. Until next time, have you checked out DrunkOnRiding.com yet? <laughs> but cheers, and keep on riding.